friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 16 of the MC Lars podcast. It is December 17th, 2018. Christmas Eve is a week away and that is Titus Heck. I've been in California, you know, I've been catching up with a lot of friends, doing a lot of podcasts, traveling, enjoying the sunshine and just seeing, just, just appreciating everything this beautiful state has to offer. Another thing is that I've been able to do is catch up with my family. And, uh, those of you might know, my dad is also, he's a writer and he's a photographer, but he's also, he's done some rap stuff. We did a song together. He's on the Indie Rocket Science mixtape. We did a song called Soledad. And so on this episode, I talked to him about his family history, some of our memories of the first tour. You know, at one point it gets kind of emotional. I think about my grandpa and his, how we, we spread his ashes under the Golden Gate Bridge and how when I drive over it, I think about him. And it was, it was really a cool topic like it, it struck me how interesting my dad's career was both as a lawyer and as a creative person so this is my episode with mc bob nielsen on the mc lars podcast check it out ladies and gentlemen welcome to another episode of MC Lars Podcast. I have a man here with whom I have a lot in common. In fact, I share 50% of his human genome. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is MC Bob Nielsen. You've seen him at Warp Tour with me. You've heard him on my albums. You heard us on, on, on Zombie Dinosaur LP and Indie Rocket Science. And uh, I, I was wondering, Dad, would you be down to read one of your poems? Sure. Uh, happy to. Um, what about Highway 68? Oh, a classic. A classic. It's uh, often requested. Highway 68. She drove up beside me. Our windows were down. Tot fitting jeans, the song on her radio. FM. K-Tom. Country. Insurance by Smith & Wesson, the sign on her rear window below the gun rack, which carried a long red umbrella. California Rodeo, her bumper sticker. So, too, her Stetson and the color of the shirt she wore. Rodeo week, big week in Salinas. The light changed. She shot ahead and out in front. And in the side mirror of her black Chevy truck, I could see her gum-chewing smile, smooth, soft skin, big brown eyes, auburn hair, and a thousand curls, and love for someone. She winked at me in the mirror and accelerated down the road to town. That's a great poem. <laughs> Thanks. You do a lot of poetry readings around the Monterey Peninsula, right? I do. Um, there's a group called the Monterey Bay Poetry Consortium, which is a loosely affiliated group of poets uh, in the Monterey area and up in Santa Cruz. And um, we have a uh, monthly poetry reading uh, in Monterey at Old Capital Books. Uh, and I host that. Uh, it's my um, privilege and task to... Uh, be the MC, and when I'm not here, there are other fellow poets who cover for me. So, yeah, and that's that's a monthly immersion, if you will, into some great poetry by local poets. Have you seen uh, Eight Mile, Eminem's movie? Oh gosh, yes, years and years ago. Yeah, one of his friends is this guy Papa Doc, who hosts the um, the ciphers, the battles, and when Eminem yes. yeah. wins, he gets offered that position, you know, to be the be the host and He's working on his music and he's not quite ready. You know, that's not what he wants. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's a, that's a position that would go to a veteran 
uh, writer and, and, and performer. How did you get asked to be the host of that? Uh, well, the guy who organizes all of this is a fellow named John Lowey, and he's a poet and a retired uh, teacher. Uh, and um, this was a few years ago now, probably seven or eight years ago, he just asked me if I would take over from the person who was doing it. Uh, and I said, sure. And at first, I really started to prepare and get all uptight and make sure that the um, readings were perfectly you know, went well, but uh, we've gotten more mellow, I've gotten more mellow and relaxed, and it's a great, fun experience. I mean, a group like that, it's, I think it's similar to me and the Nerdcore guys, right? Like it, having people to share your songs with and to collaborate with and have a reason for us coming together and doing our performances and writing is a, is a very profound catalyst, I would say. Yeah, it is. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, we don't have huge crowds generally, but we have good sized audiences. And uh, yeah, in fact, I came away from um, last Sunday's reading uh, inspired to do some writing of some poetry myself and also write some of the prose of the book I'm working on. Uh, it, it is a catalyst. It does do that. And th there was a l couple of lines that um, one of the poets said on uh, this last reading uh, that, um, that stuck with me. And uh, it, it was that um, learning is about adding Wisdom is about subtracting, and uh, I thought that was a that was a nice way to put things. And um, actually, he didn't say learning; he said knowledge is about adding, wisdom is about subtracting. And so that was, yeah, that was interesting. And I that was my takeaway from a from a nice afternoon of poetry. I was talking to Spose on his podcast, and he. We talked about the role of the producer in making an album and the role of a good producer is really about subtracting, you know, mm -hmm. adding that wisdom. You go to a veteran uh, kind of sensei in music with all your ideas and he or she will be like, OK, these ones are good. Focus on these and and not to throw the other ones out, but to be like trying to find a cohesive vision by by editing down what what you've created. And it seems like that's that's a big part of being a artist who does something of quality and something you've always done since I was a baby is every day you sit and write in your journal when you've had time mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you've created this incredible log of your life. And it's, it, it's interesting that it's what 50 volumes. Oh gosh. I don't, you know, running out of space in the garage for these things. I, yeah, I, I have, um, I've journaled a lot and you know, there's, um, there's some therapy in journaling, but there's also, um, it's a wonderful way to have a conversation uh, with uh, a, a piece, a patient piece of paper that's waiting for you. I, and I journal with a pen. Uh, and um, yeah, I, heaven knows what's going to happen when I leave the planet. I, you know, maybe we just have to make a deal that all this stuff gets shredded because gosh knows there's a lot of stuff there's a lot of um yeah i mean i i part of me is curious to read them one day but the other part of me is very respectful of your privacy and maybe reading our greatest hits yeah right yeah you know it's interesting um uh the, yeah maybe the greatest hits approach is the way to do it um 
I, I remember the the Spose interview and also um, your uh, podcast with Eamon Dolan. He talked a lot about subtracting and and coming down to the essence and the greatest hits would cer- certainly and clearly be uh, the essence. Uh, the the issue is, of course, who's got the time to go through and distill and make the greatest hits. You're in the process of subtraction, creating a memoir about your time abroad in, in college, right? Yeah, I was um, fortunate to go to overseas campus when I was in college. And it was spring and summer of my end of my sophomore, beginning of my junior year uh, in France. And this was in 1964. Uh, and the world was so very different back then. Uh, and um, it was a, a coming-of-age experience for me. It was like a renaissance, a, a, a rebirth of myself off there uh, in another culture, another country, a different language. Um, and I'd changed countries before because I was born and raised in Australia, as you know, and came here in high school. But um, Yes, it was wonderful. And, and at the same time, Europe was undergoing a renaissance. This was, you know, less than 20 years after the end of World War II. And um, uh, Europe was being reborn. France was and I was. So it was, yeah, it was a remarkable time. And this, this book I'm working on, um, I think the genre is creative nonfiction uh, dash memoir. Uh, Kerouac style. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's it's yeah. I don't know if there are any Dharma bums in um, in in this one, but uh, uh, there is. Yeah, it is that. It's kind of picaresque in a way. Um, and we traveled around Europe, and America was so much in the ascendancy back then. We were so respected uh, and loved. Uh, just a couple of little incidents. Um, uh, my first morning in tour, which is this smallish city in the Loire Valley where our campus was. Um, I got up early and walked around and with another guy from uh, my group and, uh, little kids came running up and, and, and they could recognize, I guess we were Americans and they were saying, they, they were like six, seven, eight years old. They said, Mary can, they said, Mary can, they wanted to come up and touch us and, and shake our hands. And, um, that was really kind of amazing. Americans were respected. And when we were there for the 20th anniversary of the D-Day landings, so we drove up to Normandy uh, to, and we stayed the night at an old German blockhouse on Omaha Beach, slept on the sand, wrapped up in our uh, overcoats, and the next morning went out and saw the beach just totally empty, as it must have been that morning when the Germans looked out and saw the fleet arriving of all those ships. And, um, and we went to some ceremonies, and they weren't a big deal back then. There was a band in one village um, and we stood there and watched and observed, and people came up to us and shook our hands and thanked us. Um, these were people, this was 1964, so these were people in their 40s, 50s, 60s. They remembered the liberation of France, and um, it was a remarkable experience to be an American, to be from um, this, this worshipped and wonderful country, uh, and to be respected and honored uh, there in Europe. And it's interesting, the connection that your father, my grandfather, fought in World War II and wrote a book about it. Yeah. The Aussie uh, support, too, is part of the Allied, Allied forces. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the um, Americans, I think, 
predominant the predominant landing force on Omaha Beach was um, American, but I think the predominant landing forces on Sword and Juno beaches, which we also visited, were uh, British and British Commonwealth, Canadians, Australians, and yeah, and, and my dad was in the Royal Air Force in Bomber Command, and um, he, um, you know, the, the, the Blitz started against uh, England, uh, with the night bombing of London and other cities. And so the Brits retaliated. Uh, and um, my dad was in an all-Australian crew that flew out every night, or not every night, but every one or two or three nights and, um, uh, and, and bombed targets in Germany. But they also bombed targets in France, uh, in Saint-Nazaire, out on the west coast, the Atlantic coast, where they the Germans had built this huge, almost impregnable submarine base, and my dad's uh, uh, squadron bombed that. And and most of the most of those guys didn't make it. I think it was something like almost seventy percent of the crews uh, were shot down. And my father miraculously survived. One of his mates, my mom's fiance, didn't make it. Uh, was shot down uh, over Belgium, and uh, I bear his middle name. I mean, his name is my middle name, Raymond. Um, and so my dad was doing that. And then, uh, your other grandfather, uh, he was a pharmacist, uh, in, uh, and he came ashore at Omaha beach about two months after the landing, I think in August, um, or maybe shorter than that, maybe six weeks. And he said it was raining. And I've read that the rain, it rained a lot that summer in France. And he spent the night, um, several nights in a pup tent, uh, trying to stay dry um, while the troops were advancing uh, through Normandy. And then he ultimately ended up behind them and was assigned to be the sergeant in charge of a hospital train that went into Germany uh, and brought out wounded uh, people. And also in some runs, they brought out um, uh, people released from the concentration camps who were, uh, Grandpa said they were just walking skeletons, and some of them didn't make it. Some of them didn't live. It's interesting. It's interesting thinking about when you were in France for uh, part of your college education, you were, it was like 20 years-ish before. It, you're saying it was the 20-year anniversary of D-Day. Yeah. That's yeah. like, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. Which doesn't feel, you know, that feels not too far in the past, and it's interesting that, you also talked about you went to Berlin and you were able to go over the other side of the wall, right? And yeah. That was an interesting part of your story. Yeah, we went behind the Iron Curtain. We actually, uh, one of my roommates had a, uh, a VW uh, and um, with German tourist plates on it, and we drove it eastward from France through uh, Switzerland and Austria and up through, and then behind the Iron Curtain uh, through Czechoslovakia to East Germany and then came into Berlin from the east which is, was a very unusual way of entry back then. Uh, and in fact, when we tried to leave to drive west to go back out to West Germany, they wouldn't let us. Uh, we had to park the car somewhere in West Berlin and walk back into East Berlin and get our appropriate stamps on our visas and um, our passports. And um, we were, yeah, it was, we were behind the Iron Curtain and it really was a time of, it was the Cold War. Uh, weirdly, we were young, uh, and I think could could get away with 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 being just ourselves. Uh, you know, I, I the 
the the police. We almost got into a collision with a car full of uh, looked like Russian generals in Dresden, and they, you know, they glared at us, but then they waved at us and smiled and things like that. And um, we crossed into West Berlin uh, through, uh, and then back into East Berlin one other time, uh, and then the time we had to leave through what's called Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, and it's now, a, I, I've seen pictures of it with the wall down. It's now a, um, a kind of a museum. Uh, but um, yeah, they were amazing stories. I mean, we, we showed up the entry into East Germany. It was at night and we drove through this series of barricades and barbed wire fences and lights glaring at us and guys with these huge machine guns standing around. And they were not much older than me. And we got out of the car and walked up the hill to this place where we had to get visaed and stamped in and what's coming out of the door uh, which was open uh, but the Beatles um, playing and there was just there was so much universality um, there and 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 so it was yeah it was quite an experience what do you think were some of the reasons why the generation after your generation generation X why do you think they felt this disillusionment and disenfranchisement that you know, you talk about the joy and the excitement of, of that period and how you guys, it seems like they saw you as this this symbol of the optimistic hope for the future. When did that switch? And like, do you know what I mean? Like, when did, why did Generation X have this gloomier outlook, do you think? You know, I, I don't know. Um, the world is so changed. Um, it's, it's not um, in vogue to be optimistic um, anymore. I think we... We had come out of um, my generation had come out of out of growing up with parents who weathered the depression and World War II, and there was I think you know there, well, there, well there was disillusionment. The existentialists, you know, the French existentialists were kind of a gloomy bunch, um, but there was um, there was a sense of um, confidence and hope. I think. Certainly, that the future could be something that uh, could even be made better. Um, people, people tried. The culture was was was, I think, committed to the notion of trying to make things better. I, we were in Berlin when Bobby Kennedy spoke on the first anniversary of his brother's Ich bin ein Berliner speech, and we got a. Uh, a marvelous view uh, from a balcony of an apartment house that looked over on the uh, the town hall square, Rathausplatz, and um, uh, these uh, Berliners, you know, and said, "Come on up." And we stood there, and they served us Berliner Weisse, which is beer with a little cherry juice in it. And we stood there, and, and Bobby just, you know, worked up the crowd just by repeating his brother's um, "Ich bin ein Berliner." I am a Berliner. Uh, uh, and, and so I think there was this optimism and positiveness, um, and, and, and we had people like, um, Victor Frankl, the, the survivor of the Holocaust, who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. I remember learning, studying that in college, and, and, and there was this, and, and I, I was always struck by Dr. Rieu, uh, Camus' main character in his novel, The Plague, La Peste. Um, about how you keep going, you 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 don't give up, and um, that sort of I think faded a bit. I don't think it went away, um, but I think as we became more prosperous, 
um, and didn't have to worry about material things as much, could take things for granted. Um, I think that, that we, we kind of lost the, the, the spark of, of optimism. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's a complex question. And, and I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't, wouldn't denigrate Gen X. Um, the Gen X people are wonderful. Um, and uh, they're part of your fan base. Um, mm. And uh, in talking to, um, when I've gone on the road with you, talking to your fans, people in Gen X, I've always been impressed by their good nature and their, um, their desire to, to just reach out and connect and not get too worked up by things. Uh, so, yeah, our, my fan base is a special cross section yes. of optimistic people. And I think a lot of my optimism and the values that come through my music and my storytelling come from you and mom, you know, and mm. I think that it was a process of after high school, trying to, differentiate myself, but then piece, piece together what you guys taught that resonated with me and be like, oh, mom and dad were right. And now having this friendship with you guys, that's very much like adult friendship, you know, it's, it's cool. And it's, it's very clear that you've been very supportive of my music. You came on the first tour to England. You were the tour manager. Yeah. I love that. That was great. Cause I was 20 and we booked truck records had booked shows all around the UK and maybe it wouldn't have made sense for me to figure it all out by train and rental car. So you had, you had some time and you came and we mapped it out and it was pretty, I'll never forget that. And what are some of your memories from that tour? Oh, it was great fun. Um, I remember riding the train up, um, to, um, uh, it was to the North, uh, and it was to Newcastle maybe. Um, uh, and in those trains, you know, you could spread out. So we, I spread out papers all over the desk, and we worked on receipts and bills and itineraries. Um, I remember the um, uh, you had a show in uh, London, uh, and the um, the fans from the opening band, which was a local band, uh, didn't stick around, which was not very cool. And that was a that was a, um, a hard show for you, but you went on and you did fantastically. And then we went out and had strawberry ice cream afterwards to, uh, you know, to um, to sort of just get beyond it. And uh, uh, and then the last show down in Brighton was a triumph. Uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of people there. And I remember we drove back up that night from Brighton to Heathrow and we stopped at a roadside um, a burger place on the way and got burgers and sandwiches. And I, I haven't felt a lot in life, but I certainly did then just a, a moment of, with you, of shared complete contentment <laughs> over a tour well done and wrapped up so beautifully. Yeah, that, I remember it was, it was because pre-social media, Truck Records was respected and that was what was branded on the posters, MC Lars Horace, rapper from America on Truck Records. Yeah. And the shows that were that did well were shows that had other bands on the bill that had a local audience. Yeah. Or the Oxford show did well because I'd, I'd built an audience there while a student. Yeah. And some of the shows we played, a, the sound man and one other person. And I remember the London one, it was a political group there called Weapons of Mass Belief, a play on the, the, the George W. Bush Weapons of Mass Destruction stuff. And they were very political and it felt kind of... It was exciting because it was packed. I was like, oh, these people are going to stay around. And 
they didn't say stick around for MC Lars Horace and they, everyone just dipped. And I remember that and I, playing to the, the label people and you and like one other person who'd been a student at Oxford who was there and realizing that you can't take things for granted and that it was just special to be able to play London. And then two years later, less than two years, less than three years later, I headlined there and we had, I had, remember I had like 400 people. Yeah. Was that, that, uh, the underground place with the pink walls? It was the, it was uh 93 feet East. Uh, the, this one where, yeah. where the show wasn't, uh, so well attended. Yeah. yeah and it yeah. was this cool feeling that yeah. I'd been there with you and when the graduate came out and there was this, this groundswell that it made sense. And it was so much about timing and you, we stayed positive in having you there as a friend and, you know, helping with all the logistics that tour led to everything. That show was a the show in Brighton was part of this this weekend show, the Punker Bunker Punk shows. Yeah, right. And I was the one rapper on a, a show full of hardcore and bands, and um, they liked it. And that we filmed it. You filmed my set with the crowd there. Mm-hmm. That crowd surfed and everything. And that video is what we sent when I first started talking to the, my first management company. That video was like, look, he can perform, and people see him over there, and I, you know, my career would not have happened if for, for not for that tour. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It was great fun. You also made friends with all the bands. You were very friendly yes. and they were uh, impressed to meet you. I remember that. Yeah, it was good fun. And, uh, you know, I won't speak uh, literally on this uh, podcast, but, you know, because it, there was a lot of cuss words. But um, uh, I remember this Scotsman uh, uh you know, talking about uh, how you were really going to rock them in Glasgow and um, uh, when you would come there because you didn't on that tour and you eventually did and you did rock them and uh, they loved you. And uh, yeah, it was great. I have this marvelous collection of EPs and CDs um, that I would buy from all of these bands that they would autograph. And, you know, I hope they they've gone on to success. But it was yeah, it was always fun to talk with them and connect and 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 pick up their music. And it was a cool time because the act of being able to just tour without really, you know, without having had a hit or anything was, I think, impressive to people, you know? And I think yeah, that yeah. that was 2003. That was so long ago. And um, yeah, when I, when I took senior year off to go out with Bowling for Soup and finished college in three years, you and mom were, were supportive. What were you thinking when I told you I was trying to do this stuff. Well, we were a little um, w- mixed. We were excited because Bowling for Soup, Jared and all the guys were wonderful people. We'd met them. Um, and um, Jared had made a point of telling uh, mom that don't worry, uh, he's going to be safe. And don't worry, he's going to finish college. Uh, and um, we were uh, trusting that that would be the case. But you know, you'd spent three years at college and done well and learned. And then it was just going to be one quarter you're going to be out. Then it stretched to two. Then it stretched to three. And um, you said, not to worry, you had enough um, AP classes and credits from high school that all you needed to do was take 18 units in the summer after your senior year and you would get your uh, diploma and a degree. And yes, that's exactly what happened. You didn't get to walk because you were on tour in Australia. 
Um, but you did finish, and you did get your degree, and uh, our faith in you was once again vindicated. I could just see an alternate universe, which all, similarly totally reasonable parents would be like, no, you're not doing that Bowling for Soup tour. If if it's for real, you could do a future tour, get your degree. But I would have not had that crazy see-the-whole-U.S. experience that was really formative, and they had had their hit that, that, that spring, and it was... Uh, yeah, I really appreciate you guys that had faith in me. And only later did I learn about your trepidation because you put on a very supportive face. And my manager had been very clear to, to let you guys know that I was going to finish college and that we were capitalizing on this moment in in popular culture where rap, where rap was diversifying and the samples I was using kind of had this cultural cachet that a year later, the groundswell would maybe not have carried as as far as it, it had. That, that tidal wave was coming and going, right? And Yeah, mom and I saw that. I think we felt that. And, you know, there is a considerable amount of guidance from the universe that happens in one's life if, if one lets it. And I think we were all guided to have you do that, let not stand in the way, uh, because um, it just seemed to be a marvelous opportunity, and it turned out to be so. And looking back, I think about how the business team, even though many of those people I don't work with, really made sure that it was worth my while. You know, it wasn't, I remember in the fall we were supposed to do a tour and I ended up touring with Gym Class Heroes and it was a, it was, they hadn't had any of their bigger songs. So it was this small tour and um, that they were like, well, we're going to get you something after. And, and they did. And, and I think that kind of validated the time. But then again, if they hadn't, I would have gone back to school right away. So it's not like I, I it's not like I would have, I don't know, been stranded you know, I could have always just gone back. And that was shout out to Stanford because they had a very lenient stopping out policy in, in favor of people who are doing tech startups or whatever. You could take time off and come back within a, a reasonable period. And even if you took longer, it was you could register and come back and finish. Like they wanted to make sure that their alumni uh, got their degrees, you know, and that that was that was that was pretty cool. That and, and rest in peace to Professor Jay Flegelman, because I did an independent literary study with him that summer that fulfilled one of my modern American literature core requirements that wasn't being offered, so I did a directed reading, and he's on the on the Ahab single. There's an interview with him as a bonus track, and that was that was cool. And he passed the next year, and like, uh, I just felt you know it was the college experience was really conducive to 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 you know they were rigorous, but they also were flexible. And yeah. as an alum of of we went to the same university. What was Stanford like for you? Uh, it was um, it was not as flexible, uh, but it clearly was a place um, where you were encouraged to um, to reach out and and experience and expand as much as you could. Um, and and you know, were I to go to college. Now, with all that I know that know now, I, I would have reached out even more than I did. Uh, but I think a singular thing back then was the overseas campus program. It was very innovative and very far-reaching, and they basically transported a piece of Stanford to France, and one in Germany, and one in the UK, and one in Italy. Um, and you had Stanford professors go over and teach along with local professors, and you had um, in in France, we had 40 men and 40 women. Um, 
which was a marvelous ratio uh, because uh, back on campus in Palo Alto back then, the guys outnumbered the, uh, the women, uh, I think like two to one or something like that. So Stanford was very flexible, and I think that um, for, for its time, and it certainly became more so now, and, and it's, um, it, it, it's, it, it encouraged you to do what you did, and you went back, and you um, and Professor Flegelman, I remember we went to his memorial service. He was a beloved uh, teacher and a, a great guide to you. And, uh, and I remember you, um, I think you were in a dorm on campus. That, that's where the Roommate from Hell song came from, right? <laughs> yeah. that, that, that last summer, I, I was, while I was taking my classes, I finished the graduate record. Yes, yeah. And I had a roommate who was difficult, and people were sneaking into our dorm and not to be too crass, they were leaving bottles of frozen bottles of urine in our freezer because they didn't like him or it was him or something. And I just had to switch dorms. And yeah. that was some stress of the last quarter. Being in, being, on, being in college during the summer had its own challenges, but it also had its a flexibility to it, you know. And it's a gorgeous place to be during the summer. The weather's fantastic and uh, it's a mellow place. Yeah, it's, a, you know, people get nostalgic about their college experience and I was in a rush to get out and tour, but I, you know, I would have stayed in probably in another universe, have done, had done my master's. You could have just signed on for a fourth, fifth year master's. And, but I'm really glad that I've maintained friendships with faculty there and um, keep going back. And, you know, it's, it's a special, special place. So shout out to Stanford for, for opening doors for both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Stanford. Dad, what, what were the, so you were an economics major, right? Yeah. Econ, um, uh, did the honors econ and then almost a minor in history. I, I didn't have the, um, enough, quite enough units, but yeah, was econ with history. And when did you decide you wanted to be a, a corporate lawyer? Where, where did that come about? Oh gosh. Um, I've always been interested in the way things work. Uh, and, um, uh, it seemed to me that the law was a way to be involved with making things work, uh, and um, uh, and it was also back then um, kind of a practical um, avenue to follow. Uh, I think the times back then were that you you graduated, got a job, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in our case, um, being immigrants coming from Australia as we did, um, we were sort of, uh, it was inculcated within us to, to really live and pursue the American dream, uh, succeed. Um, and, you know, my parents had come out of, as I mentioned, the World War II and the Depression, so they were motivated that way. And so the law was a good way to apply yourself to be successful. And I chose um, corporate law. Really, it was international business law um, because I was fascinated by the way things worked in the world. And I had a good career uh, doing an awful lot of uh, international business work um, in different countries and with different cultures and um, helping to make things happen and uh, helping to make things happen in the right way, too. Um, the law can be twisted and manipulated, but it really is a, a good set of guideposts for human behavior uh, if properly uh, applied and followed. And, and so 
it was a good way to, to, to make things happen the right way uh, in the environment that I was in. And you worked for some interesting companies and you traveled a lot. I remember you would, you would be on the road doing these deals yeah. when we were kids. Yeah, I did. I, I, I got out of law school and had what they call a clerkship in the federal court in Los Angeles and then joined a firm in San Francisco and was recruited out of there after a couple of years by a company that was based in Honolulu and San Francisco, and it's now known as Dole. Uh, Dole pineapples and bananas and all of that stuff. And we were had a different name back then, Castle and Cook, and we were a more diversified multinational conglomerate. Um, and <clears throat> I was based in Honolulu and San Francisco, and and we our operations were worldwide, and we we were involved in all kinds of things, um, computer software and um, uh, retail stores and fruits and vegetables and seafood and stuff. So I got to work in, in a lot of places around the world and not, you know, not the normal sort of big deal kind of places like London and Paris and Berlin, although I did, of course, but um, in obscure little countries like Kiribati, which is a tiny island nation in the middle of the Pacific, um, centered on the island of Tarawa, um, and in Suriname, which used to be Dutch Guiana, um, right in the steamy, steamy jungles of uh, South America. Um, and, uh, and those were fascinating. Uh, the people were amazing, and I was constantly impressed by the, um, the skill and the, and the energy and the education of the people I worked with. Um, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd be in this tiny little country that's totally off the mainstream and, you know, took you a day and a half and three different flights and airlines to get there. And here's someone who's gone to grad school at um, uh, University of Pennsylvania. Um, and, uh, uh, and I was so impressed by the, the folks I work with in the Philippines and in Thailand. They were, the finance guys were incredibly good and well-trained um, financial people. And um, there was this universality that, that, that was happening in the world and it was great. I remember getting coming in from the um, airport on the airport, a little bus, which is really more like a truck, from the airport outside Paremarabo, which is the capital of Suriname. Um, the bus would stop along the way, um, and people would get off, and it stopped, and this was at night, and it stopped at one place, and a young man with his uh, sort of big backpack on his back got off, but clutched in his arm was a vinyl LP, uh, and it was Simon and Garfunkel. Um, and here's this young man getting off in this dusty middle of the night uh, bus stop with one light and flies buzzing around and moths in the light. And he got off the bus and walked off into the jungle uh, with this Simon and Garfunkel LP. And I thought, my goodness, how universal things are and how connected we are. It was globalization was yeah in a yeah. good sense yeah you know the, the 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 downside of globalization is the homogenization that it can create um, but I think in a good sense in a good way it um, it connects people and it also has to and it can honor the differences and the uniquenesses and the richness um, of each culture and each individual really within that culture what was San Francisco like in the 80s, and how do you think it's changed 40 years later? Oh, gosh. Um, 
well, I can I can go back to San Francisco really even before then when we first came to America, and um, uh, it's um, it was it was a it was a small town really. Um, it was tightly knit and socially. Um, the law firm I joined um, after my clerkship was well wired into the fabric of San Francisco, and this was in 1972. Um, and um, uh, there were um, there were there were norms of behavior. Um, if you came into San Francisco in the 1960s and you were a woman, you dressed up. You wore gloves, um, and uh, you didn't wear white high heels uh, in the summer, even though it was summer. But you wore dark ones because San Francisco got foggy and cold as if it were winter. I mean, there were these norms that. There was this marvelous columnist in the Chronicle, uh, Herb Cain, who uh, recorded uh, sort of life in the city. Um, and there were, there were companies there that have since gone bankrupt or taken over, uh, been taken over or disappeared um, or moved out. Uh, and so it was a very powerful financial uh, and corporate and business center. And a lot of California's agribusiness uh, and natural resources businesses funneled through San Francisco. And of course, Southern Pacific, the railroad uh, giant was headquartered there. And, and there, was a, um, there was an undercurrent of bohemianism in San Francisco, which had been there long, long before. And it was surfacing and bubbling up. And um, Herb Cain helped stoke that. And he uh, coined the term beatnik. Exactly, um, because the beat generation was there. And Ferlinghetti and, and those guys uh, were up in North Beach at City Lights. And I remember I'd, we'd go up to North Beach for lunch, you know, have a great spaghetti lunch somewhere and um, then go back to the office. And I was young, very young. And um, uh, it was a... Um, and, and also, too... Um, San Francisco has always historically been more tolerant of diversity, although kind of racist uh, and, and restrictive in some ways. But um, gay pride and gay movement, of course, started there. And I can remember the, the old guard reacting so negatively to it. Herb Cain even was hostile to it. And then some friends of his um, illuminated him, and he came out very much in favor of the gay movement. And so then then the city... Um, opened up and had the summer of love and um, hate Ashbury and all of that. And people that I know who are in that scene who, and I wasn't, said that it sort of came off the rails um, and it got self-indulgent and the drug culture moved in. But San Francisco was, um, was exciting and beautiful. It still is. It's a marvelous, fantastic city. There's a great Robert Crumb cartoon where he, um, I recommend the audience to, to check this out. It's about the aftermath of the sixties. And he has, mm -hmm. he has, there's a compilation of cartoons called on the crest of the wave. And it's, he talks mm -hmm. about how the hate Ashbury kind of became this place of darkness and the zombies and the weird resonance of the Manson stuff. And like, yes. and how these people would take in too much acid ended up. And it's interesting dad, because you're an artistic, I would say bohemian guy. We haven't even touched on your photography career and your award-winning photos and your prolific vision. And you have been a guide to me as someone who balanced your duty with your creative spirit. And I think that to be a successful artist, you can't just make art. 
you have to surround yourself with the structure <coughs> that allows the structure that allows you to um, be able to create and relax into it and not panic about what you're doing. And I think that you were living in a place where you could have been distracted and done your art and maybe gone and taken acid and no disrespect to people who've experimented with that. But I guess your work ethic, what that came from your, your family and being an, an Australian immigrant, you think? I think so. Um, you know, Australia where I grew up and, and just so folks know, we, we came to America twice. We came when I was 10 years old for my dad to get a PhD at UC Berkeley. And then three years later we went back to Australia and then, settled back into life there and my dad's job opportunities were better in the US so a year or so later we moved back to America and um, uh, and so that was in high school and um, we moved to Los Gatos to what was, what was then called the Santa Clara Valley it wasn't Silicon Valley um, but you know growing up in Australia that was a very Victorian Edwardian uh, culture um, and I think there was a lot of um, this discipline and self-discipline uh, expressed or, or, or inculcated in people. Um, and so I think um, that was kind of the motivator. My, my best friend uh, in college is from Kansas, um, a remarkable guy. And, uh, you know, he and I got along and do get along very well because I think our roots were similar. The Australian uh, culture and the Midwestern American culture, there, there is a lot of um, uh, commitment to doing what you need to do and doing it right. But, you know, that can be stiltifying. And I, I saw, well, part of me had this need um, to go beyond that, certainly to go beyond the law and its constraints and um, to be creative and express and, and I always, I think since I was a, a kid, um, was always um, fascinated by the world and wanted to record it and reflect back to the world, to people in it, my take on it. And I remember when we, when we moved back to Australia after living in Berkeley, I, with my paper route money, uh, bought a 35 millimeter camera, which ultimately I took to France and so forth. And, and it was a great way to connect and express. And I think that it's, it's hard to strike a balance, but to your point that you need to have sort of a structure around your art making, I think that's very true. And um, otherwise, you end up being, no, you don't necessarily, but one can end up being the starving artist in the garret um, in poor health and not eating well and, and, and maybe some folks tripping out and stuff like that. Uh, that that is, it rarely results in the person who's making the art being satisfied and content. And I think even, even more rarely does it result in, in, quote, good art, unquote, being put out there. So I think you have to have a structure. And a good example of that is Claude Monet, um, the French impressionist. He, um, he was a daring uh, painter. Uh, and he and the other guys... Um, including Gustav Kayabat, who was one of his very close friends, um, broke through the, the walls of the, of the academy, um, uh, the salon system in France. And, um, but they had structure. They had, a, they had a context in which their material needs were taken care of. And within that 
context, which was not confining or narrow, but was large, they then were free to create. And Kayabat, in fact, who died young, was the son of a very wealthy French industrialist, and Kayabat is a marvelous painter in his own right. Um, Kayabat helped bankroll Monet and Renoir and those guys. Um, and I think, you know, the challenge is to have that structure and, uh, you know, give us this day our daily bread sort of stuff being taken care of and not to obsess with that and not to, you know, greedily want more and more and more, but to have a structure and then within that structure uh, of your needs being taken care of, including your family's needs, then you're free to create and then making sure you do create, taking the time daily uh, to, to, to create and express, if for no other reason than to satisfy yourself, but also maybe to reach out to other people and maybe to express some things to other people that you think, and they in turn agree, they would like to see or hear uh, in the case of music, for example. Well, and you've, uh, you've, you've built a, like we talked about your writing group, your photography groups that mm -hmm. you've connected with. Mm -hmm. And as people who know my story, we, I grew up in the, in the Bay area in Oakland, and then we moved to the Monterey Peninsula and right before middle school. And I saw this resurgence in you of your creativity in that, during that period. And do you think it was, what, what led to that? And, and were you involved in like poetry and photography groups in the Bay area? Cause I don't remember that. No, um, that's a, that's a very good question. I, you know, one could be tempted to say, well, it's in the water, uh, in the Monterey area. But it was not that. I think it was um, moving down to um, an area that really does have a strong local tradition of art making. Um, I mean, back up in the Bay Area, I had discovered Zen uh, and was getting involved with that in the East Bay in Berkeley in Oakland. This is in the late uh, 80s. Um, and so um, and there, there were some poetry groups and I took a extension writing class at UC Berkeley. But down in the Monterey Peninsula area, there's this heritage of the writers. John Steinbeck and um, uh, poets uh, were here, uh, Robinson Jeffers being one. Robert Louis Stevenson. And Robert Louis Stevenson spent time here. Uh, Kerouac. And, and Kerouac, of course, down in Big Sur. Um, and uh, Joseph Campbell um, spent time in Pacific Grove. And when I say here, that's obvious that we're recording this in Monterey. Henry Miller. Henry Miller. Yeah. Uh, and, and on and on. And then, and then uh, the painters, Armin Hansen and those guys. And then, of course, the photographers, uh, Edward Weston and Ansel Adams and the whole what they call Monterey School. So we came down here into an environment that was rich with um, this tradition and this history. And, you know, our house is, um, you know, 10 miles from where Ansel lived. Um, it's, um, uh, it's just over the hill from where Steinbeck lived. Uh, and uh, so it's- And Dylan camped out in Carmel Valley and wrote songs here. He did. Yeah. Dylan and Joan Baez was here. Um, yeah. And Joan Baez had a school here in Carmel Valley. And uh, Robert Louis Stevenson uh, stayed for a long period of time in a hotel boarding house that's around the corner from where the monthly poetry readings are held. Mm. Um, so there's, there's that um, tradition. And uh, so it, it kind of, it's, I guess it's a chicken and egg thing. It kind of encouraged me to open up and explore, which is something I needed and wanted to do. And it's probably genetic because one of my grandfathers, 
uh, was a poet and a writer, uh, and my dad was a good writer, um, and my dad's mother was a good writer. So um, I think things came together. It was kind of like the perfect combination. I find, you know, I, I was up in the Bay Area doing some interviews and came down to visit you guys. Once you get south of Gilroy, mm-hmm. it just opens up. Yes. It opens up and the highways get smaller and it's not country, but you feel like you could be in the Midwest or up in, you know, Arcata. You feel like this this space. And it's it was interesting seeing this as your son as you became, you know, less stressed out and obviously there were work pressures and stuff, but it was we really have we have and had a good relationship and you always made time for me. And there's that Cats in the Cradle song, which I always oh, yeah. so sad, and I never felt like that was part of our experience. I remember you'd always, when you're home, you would have time to draw with me. You know, yes, right. And we'd have right. like a we'd have a special special day of, of 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 we'd build like a chair for my Roger Rabbit toy, or yeah, we'd draw, yeah. and you were like, okay, it's it's daddy, it's Andrew Daddy time, and you would do that, and I think about how. It makes me sad to think about people who maybe didn't have that experience and how if I ever became a father, I would really make time for my son or daughter. And, you know, mom's a big part of that, too. We haven't even touched on her and I'm going to do an episode on her, but that you and her were such a great team because she taught me to love literature. And but you always both made time for each other. And how you know, you have been with mom 50 years now. Yeah, we've been married 50, yeah, 50 years. That's a great model on like a great relationship. And I hope Ashley and I can surpass that too, you know? And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How did you balance your incredibly stressful traveling career with this fantastic relationship? Uh, that was hard work. Um, not hard work. It was work. I think we had to be conscious of and still do, of each other's needs. I think the fundamental element in any relationship is communication uh, coupled with respect for the other person uh, and um, all wound up in, in, bound up with love for that person. Uh, and that's kind of a platitudinous way of saying it, but I think what you do with that sort of is your as your um, underlying ethos, if you will, you then make your choices and your decisions accordingly. Um, and I can remember, you know, it wasn't easy to travel. I would, I would get on a plane and, I mean, I remember one trip I came back from Suriname and I had to go to Tokyo and I saw mom for uh, an hour and a half at SFO uh, between planes and I was kind of toast. And, and, she came over and we just had a little time together. And I have on, on a shelf here a piece of wood, uh, driftwood, that we picked up at Point Reyes uh, on Drake's Beach there um, on a, a walk we took on a Sunday before I went out on some uh, worldwide trip. And I, would, I took that piece of wood with me and I would take it with me ever since as a kind of a souvenir or a talisman or something. And so I think you have to... Um, you have to communicate, you have to respect. Uh, and um, for me, life began again when mom and I got married. And then for the two of us, life began again when you and your sister were born. Uh, and I think you just, you govern yourself accordingly. What were the first five years of, of being a dad like? <laughs> they, they were a challenge. Um, the first few months, 
um, were the hardest part. The sleep deprivation was something that um, I didn't expect. Uh, and I've said, you know, I would have confessed to any crime you confronted me with back then because I was just so unused to getting up every three or four hours or however often it was. And um, uh, so it was an adjustment. Uh, and uh, But it was always, you know, we, um, we didn't have our, you guys when we were young, we were a little older. And so you were very wanted and um, we knew what a treasure uh, and a blessing you were and are. So, so we adjusted accordingly. But but it was it was different and and during um, during those first five years uh, when you were about um, three years old maybe um, uh, Castle and Cook my company was taken over uh, in the takeover wars of the eighties and I was ultimately uh, uh, no longer there uh, and had had a lot of time at home uh, during while I was uh, realigning my career. And um, I got to be Mr. Mom, and that was great fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it almost became to the point where when someone would come to pick you up to, like, go to somewhere with a play date or something, I'd be there in my fuzzy slippers and hair curlers. I mean, it wasn't quite that, but, um, but it was great. And I, I think, you know, the thing is we didn't let go of any of the things that we were doing and that were important to us, as in career or other pursuits and certainly our relationship to each other, we just had to narrow our focus because we had something else on our plate, which was you guys. Um, and that actually was the most important item on the plate, you guys. And so we adjusted everything accordingly. And, but we did things like we maintained, we had a date night once a week um, and a lovely lady would come in and sit you guys. And so, and then we did things as a family uh, increasingly uh, and, and mom was great um, because I would be gone for, say, two weeks at a time, sometimes longer. And back then there was no web, uh, no, there were no cell phones. Um, and the only way you could communicate when some of the obscure places I was in was by telex. Um, and, uh, but that would go through the company communications center. So I certainly wasn't going to be communicating with mom by telex and Occasionally, we would get to talk on the phone, uh, but not much because it was hard to make a phone connection and it was expensive. So mom, you know, carried the ball a lot um, logistically and emotionally um, uh, with you guys when I was away. And then I certainly made sure that when I was here uh, and and over time, my travel dialed back. Um, I certainly made time when I was here uh, to pick up the slack and actually give mom a break. Uh, and spend uh, time with you guys, which I really wanted and needed to do. And I remember she would take an annual spa trip for a week. Yes, she would go with the ladies. Yeah. And that was always like uh, her her sanity, her piece of sanity. Mom's R&R, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah. we, you know, um, I had my sister on an old podcast episode back when I first started. She and I are definitely unique and I was definitely very active and hyperactive. And we definitely got on each, we pushed each other's buttons for fun. But I had this, you know, being a little brother, this, I always would tease her and, and like poke her. And, and it must have been having the two of us when we would not get along. That must have been 
that must have been one of the harder parts of having us. I don't know. Yeah, it was a challenge at times. I mean, we sometimes felt like we had to referee. Um, I would get tattled on for little things and then I would like pretend I didn't start the war, but I'd always like throw the the match on and then I would love to get a reaction out of my sister. Yeah, there was, there was that, but I think you guys, um, you know, the, the, the basic watchword in the family was respect for each other. And, um, uh, and it, you know, at times the referee job got a little challenging and, you know, mom or I would just basically, order you to stop it and work it out. And you guys did. And you have a wonderful sister and you guys have a really good relationship and you're both fantastic, albeit uh, unique and different people. I think growing up with my sister taught me to kind of be sensitive and understand women a little bit more. And Mm -hmm. when I was, you know, dating and in college, I was, I think if I'd been an only child, I wouldn't, or if I had a brother, it would have been harder to kind of understand like, and every person is different, but yeah, learning how to listen and, and learning how to share. Mm-hmm. That was very important because you guys were always very fair. And um, yeah, so having two kids was, uh, I guess, I wasn't planned, was I? <laughs> uh, well, you were certainly desired yeah. and you came earlier than we expected, which was just fantastic. And, um, uh, you know, and I think there is something, you know, I grew up with, with a sister too. And I, you know, I don't, it's, it's probably maybe not PC to say boys and girls are different, but they are. Um, and, um, uh, I think psychologists would agree with that in terms of just cognitive function and the way, um, uh, girls and boys are. And I know a lot of that is social, uh, socialization and so forth. Um, but at least in our case, in our family, you and your sister do approach, did approach life differently. You, you see things differently. You process differently. Um, you are um, governed by um, different aspects of your hearts and your minds. And so those differences were manifest early on in your lives. And um, I think what was important in our family was for you each to respect those differences in the other and not to denigrate the other um, on account of them and uh, to appreciate uh, each other. And uh, that's one of the things that mom and I really are, are happy and, and, and grateful for is that you and your sister do appreciate each other and respect each other. One of the other things, one of the last things um, before we wrap up and talk about where people can find you and find your work I, I now something I really value and I'm so thankful for is ever since we were kids, you guys had this fantastic rule of no Nintendo, no computer games, no TV during the week. If we did our homework, we could we could play on Friday and then on the weekends for only a half hour to an hour. And I think about now, you know, a potential parent would be you have to like confiscate screens. Everything's so portable and easy to hide. And when we got a Game Boy, you know, that was different. Like on in the car, you'd let us play. But you wouldn't, you know, I had so many friends who'd be like, did you see this this show, that show? You'd let us watch The Simpsons when it switched to yes, Thursday. Right, right. But But that was really it. And I think that forced me to read a lot, mm-hmm. to draw a lot, to start making music to spend time with my friends. I kind of feel like we had this Calvin and Hobbes sort of outdoor exploration where 
those childhood memories that that afforded me are priceless. And I think that's given me a very rich, happy adulthood. Mm -hmm. And that that was really, really smart. And, you know, it made us maybe uncool with our friends that we didn't watch MTV all day. But I think it then led to me to be fascinated with popular culture and to make my appreciation of it being how I remixed it, how I commented on it, and then my series of lit hop songs and how I'm mm-hmm. doing this series mm-hmm. of, of of projects based on specific authors that there was, you had to, if you were going to have a relationship with media, it had to be contextual, it had to be finite, and it had to be in service of something else, or it had to be purposeful. And I think that, I don't think I would have turned out like I did, and I don't think I would have, you know, Got, got gotten into the college I did if I screwed around and mm-hmm. everyone's different but was that conscious and like how did you and mom come to terms on that well you know yes it was conscious um, we were aware of the um, pervasive power of media um, we'd both grown up in households where we got TVs when we were kids, we got we got a TV in America when I was um, eleven years old, and all of a sudden, you know, there's this thing in the house. And I think in Mom's case, it was about that same age for her. Then um, there was debate going on back then too about um, television um, becoming too dominant in people's lives, and so we believed and still do that. Um, Electronic media, as wonderful as they are, need to be constrained. Um, and, and I think of articles I've read about Steve Jobs and others in Silicon Valley sent and send their kids to a school where um, laptops... No screens. Yeah, no yeah. screens. Um, and if anybody should know why that's good not to have screens, those guys would. And we, we just saw um, uh, last week the movie Eighth Grade, which is a wonderful, painful movie. Um, It took me so back to that. But I was struck by the way in which the screens are so present, if not intrusive, in the lives of all of those kids. And I have read about this psychological uh, diagnosis now called device addiction. Um, and, And we... We didn't want that to happen, uh, and it wasn't called that back then, but we saw there was value in uh, things beyond just sitting in front of a screen, um, and, uh, and this, was, this was well before uh, personal computers and certainly before um, uh, smartphones and things like that, but we, we did, you know, we, we were on the, on the cutting edge of that. We, we got computers in the home and, and um, we got onto Prodigy and things like that. Um, but we, it, it's like any good thing, uh, too much is too much. And so we, we, we kept it um, narrowed and limited. And I think one of the consequences was, as you said, you read, uh, you read books uh, and you've got um, uh, your great song about sitting on the couch um, uh, with mom reading books, yeah, um, in uh, in our house in Oakland. So, so it's a wonderful thing. Media are great, uh, screens are great, um, but like any good thing, uh, you don't want to OD on them. I remember um, 
there was a game Mario Paint for a Super Nintendo where you could compose music in it. Oh, and I spent time doing that. And I think Neat, that yeah. like all that led to, you know, you guys were supportive. You let me to take guitar lessons and mm-hmm. everything. And yeah, it's it was just your parenting was a plus. And I oh, hope thank you so much. I, if I ever become a dad that I can kind of learn from you and, and check in with you on like what worked, what didn't. And it's different now, but at the same time, it's not that different if you keep these old values and really are present in your kid's life and love him or her and figure out how to balance work with your personal time and whether it's personal therapy or health or wellness and you, you meditate every day still, don't you? I do. Yeah. I, I find that essential and I, I, it's just, it's, it's really, I'm not a Zen practitioner in the strict sense of the word, but I did learn, gosh, 40 years ago, um, uh, that uh, there is value in being centered, uh, which is what meditation allows you to do. In fact, back then, this thing called transcendental meditation was was taking root. TM and the the Beatles got into it with the with the Maharishi. Um, but I, I found Zen books by writers like Alan Watts um, that were very appealing to me, and I think that's important. I think I think that does help you keep a balance, um, and. Um, uh, and so you go from there. And, and we, too, we talked to our parents as we were raising you guys. Um, and they gave us some guidance. Uh, and I have, you know, every confidence that when and if you guys have, you, you and Ashley have kids, you know, y- you'll do great. Yeah, you'll talk to us at times. And, but, you know, and it's a different world. Um, but you'll do great. Uh, I think having an honest heart. Uh, is the essential prerequisite for that and for anything really in life. And another thing is you never, you know, as a man who doesn't drink and you never imbibed in any, any, you weren't distracted by any like dangerous substances. You were, you kept your head clear and that was a great role model. I never, yeah. I mean, you always showed up. And yeah. I, um, I, 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 I used to party. Um, and, uh, um, and uh, enjoy adult beverages, um, but um, they, after, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, I realized they didn't agree with me, and so I stopped. But, you know, we have in our family a history of, of, of alcohol issues going back generations, and I think, you know, we've seen what that has done to family members. We've also seen the flip side of what family members have so wonderfully and beautifully achieved by getting on their path, some of them through 12-step programs, um, some of them simply through faith uh, and, uh, and strength of, of their own, just doing it on their own. Um, and so and we've seen the, um, the goodness and the richness uh, that comes out of a life that is not really um, captive of external things, uh, in this case, substances, alcohol or drugs, but you know, lives can be captured by other things, too. There can be addictions of all kind. Um, and we've seen, I think, in our family and the examples given to us um, of what happens when you do allow yourself to be captured and, on the flip side, what happens so wonderfully and beautifully when you don't allow it and when you instead come home to who you really are and you live life authentically and honestly uh, from your center, um, 
with or without the support of a 12-step group or your faith uh, or your family or whatever, but you come home to yourself and you live authentically. And I think that's, that's what it's about. And you can come home and do authentic podcasts with yes. people you love. <laughs> exactly. Dad, yeah. I wanted to end and share this story. Um, yesterday when I was driving down to interview uh, Charlie for his talk, to talk about his DJ career, I, uh, I drove over the Golden Gate Bridge and, it's, and it was still sunny. It was a beautiful day. Like coming, you know, they call that tunnel now the Robin Williams Tunnel. Yes, so neat. Which yeah. is awesome. Yeah. And I remember uh, I drove over the Golden Gate Bridge and it's just always captivating that when you drive in. And then once you pass through and the Presidio's on your left mm-hmm. and there's that view of it, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, fourth grade trips and when we built the model of the Golden Gate Bridge and all mm-hmm. our connection to the Bay Area and why I always wear the Oakland A's hat because we still go to A's games. And yeah, we do. They, I remember they came, this is a side story. I tweeted that I was there and they, since they follow me, they came, the social media team came and gave us hats and shirts. In that game, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, was dope. That, that last year, yeah. It's, um, the Bay Area is special and the, the Golden Gate is a connection to the Pacific, which is a connection to Hawaii, where you stopped over on your first trip to California, where you did so much of your business career Mm -hmm. as a corporate lawyer, and Australia. Absolutely. And New Zealand, where our ancestors came from Denmark Mm -hmm. and Scotland Mm -hmm. and Europe. And those places, New Zealand has always called to my heart. And the family reunion we had with all their cousins in in Melbourne this Mm -hmm. year was amazing. And we drove over, and I remember right after 9-11, when your father died, my grandpa, we took his ashes and we went out and we had to delay the 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 spreading the ashes in the sea because of 9/11. Right. And I remember um we tossed them in there and we played like the the military music and whenever I g- cross the Golden Gate Bridge I think I think of him. Mm-hmm. I I wave to him of of my dad. Yeah. Your grandpa. And yeah. cuz he's always there under the bridge and the story of him flying over the Sydney Harbor Bridge or his friends flying over in under the, under it yeah. <laughs> on his wedding day to, yeah. to surprise him and and yeah. that connection that our life is a series of of bridges and travel and exploration and joy and the Nielsen the Nielsen connection goes back so deep and it makes me emotional because I miss him and I yeah, miss yeah. when I'm in New York, I miss you guys, yeah. but that I really am thankful for how you've created these roots in California and allowed me to be myself and find myself and coming home yesterday and kind of waving to grandpa from the bridge was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah. And it wouldn't, none of that would have happened if you hadn't gotten your life together to make this possible and to spread this legacy to if you know another generation and yeah, i just yeah. appreciate you dad i wanted well, to say that thank i, I you, didn't mate. expect to get so emotional but i thank miss you when i'm in new york you well, know thank you mate and 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 we miss you too and ashley um and we count among our richest blessings are you and your sister and ashley and um uh and all the goodness in life and i think this is the this is family at its best. And, um, and our family is kind of amazing. I mean, we have been nomadic over the generations from Australia, Scotland, Denmark, to New Zealand, to um, America. Uh, and, um, 
it's 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 quite something. And I I also think too that um, your grandfather's my dad's ashes, um, which we did scatter there uh, off the coast uh, outside the Golden Gate. They've also probably drifted now to Australia, New Zealand, uh, at yeah. least at least figuratively, and and uh, and we do have uh, an amazing family. And I think one of the neat things is that, thank God, nowadays uh, we can keep the connections. Um, and yes, we miss you and Ashley uh, a lot when you're back in New York. Um, but thank God, there are things like FaceTime uh, that help. Um, bridge the, the the distance to use the bridge metaphor again, and uh, not like it was in the old days when our ancestors emigrated from Scandinavia uh, to New Zealand. Uh, they never saw their family again, uh, and so we don't have that. We have the miracle of of again technology and screens that keep us together, and um, so it's uh, it's great. It's been fun growing up with you. Uh, and I look forward to doing that for decades to come. We wrote a song about uh, a son and his father who yeah. communicate over distance, and uh, it's called Soledad. Yeah. yeah. And do you want to do you want to introduce it? Because we'll end this podcast with our our rap collaboration. Oh, marvelous! Yeah, uh, sure. Soledad, uh, there's a mission out in the Salinas Valley, just over the, the mountains here from us. Um, that was founded by the Franciscans as they moved north and built their missions in California in the 1700s. Um, and Soledad uh, is um, solitary and alone in a kind of a windswept part of the Salinas Valley. Uh, and uh, there's a mission further south uh, and um, San Antonio, and then there's one to the north in Carmel. And Soledad was kind of an out-of-the-way place, and we visited that you and I and mom, and um, uh, the loneliness and the desolation struck us. And so you and I collaborated and this story came to us. I was so impressed with the way you, the story just poured out from you onto paper and I helped. Uh, and um, uh, the, the story, and, and then we recorded it. And, uh, and you tracked your vocals in the Rondo Brothers studio yeah. where we did Digital Gangster LP and part of Robot Kills and Single and Famous and Zombie Dinosaur LP. And after they remodeled it, you were the first vocalist to use that booth. Oh, well, that's cool. That I didn't know that. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was neat. And you were so patient. I know um, you were uh, you were using the software for the soundboard. And, you know, we did your take, uh, your part of the tracks in like, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. <laughs> it took all day for me Uh the rest of the day to get mine down, but it was great fun. And it's the story of a son who is a priest, um, who has fathered a child uh, and left the child um, back uh, in Spain. Uh, and um, the priest has been basically kind of exiled to Soledad where he's alone and As by a himself. punishment, because priests yeah. have to be celibate. Exactly. And, yeah. and he was atoning for his sin and he's communicating with his father, who was a professor at the University of Salamanca in Spain. And the father knew Junipero Serra, who was the founder of the California missions. And so there's some interplay in all of that, uh, mixing history with um, creative nonfiction. But it's basically a story about um, fathers and sons and connection and the importance of 
love and maintaining those connections. And the beat was produced by uh, Samurai from Portland. And what's great about the beat is it kind of has this science fiction, sci-fi, anime, haunting horn. And it's this thing about Soledad that's so gorgeous. If you go to this, you know, Central Coast and go in and down the valley, the stars are just remarkable. So it's two, it's a father and a son writing each other, looking at the stars. And I remember when we were kids, Look, going to going to summer camp, sitting on your lap and looking at the stars, and you said, "You know, Andrew, somewhere across the galaxy, there's probably a, another creature with the sun looking at looking out at the stars and thinking about how there's another dad and son marveling in this magic universe." Yes, and yeah, and, yeah. and so that song channels that because it's distance and the letters take forever to get to each other, but this father and his son keep in touch. And when I made Lars Attacks and in Indie Rocket Science, I was in Brooklyn and I was about to do the warp tour and um it's how I felt far away from you but but also we we worked on this song and it, it's it was a standout track on that mixtape for sure. Yeah, it's a great track. And you yeah. have fans who who at when you play when we do yeah. shows some you've opened for me reading your poetry. Yeah. And you yeah. often do Mr. Raven. Yes. And like people, especially in the Bay Area, when I play a show you're not there, people are like crestfallen where's your dad because there you're always at the merch booth and signing yeah. autographs where's mc bob people love you dad and oh thank you mate that's fun to have you uh on stage you are prolific on social media let's talk about where our the our podcast listeners can find your work oh well i do have a website uh it's pilgrim the word p-i-l-g-r-i-m pilgrim hyphen arts pilgrim hyphen arts dot com uh, I'm on Facebook as Robert Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-E-N, and I'm Instagram on Instagram. It's just simply one word, Robert Nielsen Instagram. Um, and I'm on Twitter um, under Robert Nielsen. Sorry, on Twitter, you're Robert Nielsen number one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Robert Nielsen and then just the Arabic number one, huh? That's right, yeah. Okay, well, I'm lucky I got that. Yeah. Um, and I post, uh, if I post an image, and usually they're photographs that I post on my website, uh, and they start with a Facebook post and a concurrent uh, Instagram and Twitter or tweet, and uh, and then they go onto my website, and the website um, is a little bit behind schedule, and uh, uh, that's that's where you can see my stuff. Your website's cool because it has your, it's a little bit about your career as a lawyer, very little, and then all your writing, and you have themes, and it's yeah. We're we're, we're trying to get you on Squarespace, but it's so content rich and well laid out that it's gonna t- it's a process to update. Yeah, yeah, we'll 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 figure that out. I use iWeb, which Apple no longer supports, and I see that they're going uh, um, they're going from I guess twelve bit processing up to whatever the next level is, and so iWeb is definitely not going to be supported in the next. Uh, OS upgrade uh, for uh, Macs, and so I've uh, I've, I've got to get off it. But I'm I'm researching, and you and I've talked about Squarespace, and then I've also there is a successor um, platform, uh, apparently created by a bunch of people at who were at Apple and did work on iWeb, and so I'm going to explore that too. And so check it out while you can, because it's yes, in the process please. of changing. <laughs> and you do performances and you post when you do them. So maybe some of the fans, yeah. if they're on, visiting California, can see you perform. Well, April 14th, um, next year, I'm going to be doing a poetry reading in Monterey. Okay. Uh, so I'll put that up on uh, Facebook and other posts. Uh, and yeah, so love to see folks. 
Well, thank you, Dad. This has been this has been a really special episode, and I want to thank you. I know you're busy, and thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's great, mate, and uh, appreciate your time. And uh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks. Bye. Bye, bye. Still stuck in Soledad, I'm only dad, it's true. Hope you'll come home when your mission is through. There's nothing but stars in the lonely solitude. Dear son, Salamanca's still been the same. Six thousand miles away, but I still feel your pain. Adventure and duty did what was required. Your life in the new world, our tired empire. Dear father, thanks for writing. Not much is new, just heat, wind, and rain, and the lonely solitude. The priesthood is difficult, it's driving me insane. Hypocrisy, it's not for me, and every night I dream of Spain. And the son that you sired, that I've been left to raise, is looking more like you every week, every day. And it's you that I see when I look in his eyes. Every day he grows taller, last week he turned five. It's just me and my thoughts, and the stars up in the sky. It's silent and mysterious and peaceful every single night. I was martyred for my sins when I fathered a son. So they sent me on a mission, but I really wish I could run away. Hey, I'm writing to you. Dear Still stuck in Soledad, I'm only dad, it's true. Hope you'll come home when your mission is through. There's nothing but stars in the lonely solitude. 1802, I'm writing to you. Dear Still stuck in Soledad, I'm only dad, it's true. Hope you'll come home when your mission is through. There's nothing but stars in the lonely solitude. Dear Father, I fear that my faith is slowly fading. We brought the native smallpox and mentally enslaved them with our teachings from the Bible. Guilt and salvation, Trinitarian, cruel agrarians on this here plantation. Dear son, I knew Sarah. We were friends. He chose church. Many souls to redeem after damning them first. Built missions. My mission was spreading the light. At the university, you can see me teaching these young minds. San Diego, Sonoma, so much more beautiful. It was you who taught loyalty, said to be beautiful. They say in Carmel that the water's so blue. And it's true, if I could, I would swim home to you. Your walls made of mud, the Indians have built. Adobe, well, it's mostly straw, dirt, and silt. The wind and the rain will bring the walls down. God's glory gone, and loneliness your crown. 1802, I'm writing to you. Dear Still stuck in Soledad, I'm only dad, it's true. Hope you'll come home when your mission is through. There's nothing but stars in the lonely solitude. 1802, I'm writing to you. Dear Still stuck in Soledad, I'm only dad, it's true. Hope you'll come home when your mission is through. There's nothing but stars in the lonely solitude. Ventana to the south, Gabalons to the east. There's beauty in our home, though it sometimes seems bleak. To the glory of Spain, we remain and maintain this edifice, our testament to faith, love, and pain. A cathedral, you say, that you want to be built on the plains of Soledad, one day to be filled with 
the faithful of California who've not got a clue. But Mexico will be free from Spain, and so, my son, will you. Tears on my cheeks, lagrima, sombrero seco, the wind and the rain, la tierra y el fuego, la cara de Dios me da un gran sonrisa, lo miro cada día en la Santa Lucia's. Choose then to return, for your workout there's done. King and church have been served, and the race has been won. Dispensation from above, you've earned it, my son. Come home now to family, come home to my love. 1802, I'm writing to you. Dear Still stuck in Soledad, I'm lonely, Dad, it's true. Hope you'll come home when your mission is through. There's nothing but stars and the lonely solitude. 1802, I'm writing to you. Still stuck in Soledad, I'm lonely, Dad, it's true. Hope you'll come home when your mission is through. There's nothing but stars and the lonely solitude. Dear son, son, son. That was wonderful. Thank you, Dad. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Next week, guess what? I'm interviewing my mom, DJ Kathy Nielsen, back-to-back holiday special. So we've got a lot of great podcasts coming up. So please, if you like this episode, please leave a comment. Please subscribe. Please spread the word. I want to give a shout-out to my Patreon supporters, as I always do. Some of my uh, new ones. Shout-out to Jay Lucas. Shout-out to Steven. And also, shout out to Daniel. Like, Daniel's came to most of my shows, like all my shows actually, when I did my residency in New York. And I was at a Streetlight Manifesto show, and randomly, he's there. He goes, Lars. I'm like, Daniel. So, shout out to him. And his cousin went to high school with me, David. So, that's crazy. Also, some old school supporters. Shout out to Chad, Jen, and Jason. I have coming out in a few days the final song on the Narnia EP about the last battle, which is kind of like a song about how I imagine heaven would look like through a Narnian perspective. It's wild stuff. Anyway, check it out. Uh, Thank you again for listening. I hope you all have a great week and uh, more flavor coming soon. Take care. Bye.